chapter 2 and verse 12. Joel chapter 2 verse 12. Yet even now, saith the Lord, turn ye unto me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth whether he will not turn and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meal offering, and a drink offering, unto the Lord your God. And then in verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward, and I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord cometh. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those that escape, as the Lord hath said, and among the remnant those whom the Lord does call. Now one <coughs> Now this evening we come to the second of the twelve minor prophets, the little book of Joel. Although in the Septuagint and the Hebrew arrangement its position varies just a little, but always in the second place, although, although now finally in our arrangement, it has come to occupy the second place in these twelve minor prophets. <clears throat> Although Joel is small in size, its influence is tremendous in every way. Perhaps one of the most remarkable uh, facts about this little prophecy is the way in which it has influenced some of the biggest prophecies that we have, some of the biggest prophetic books we can, I think, say, owe quite a lot uh, to this little prophecy of Joel. Perhaps that's another reason why we should not despise little things. Just because they're small and short, it doesn't mean to say <clears throat> that they're not in, uh, invaluable. His message underlies all Hebrew prophecy. Um, in many ways, he has influenced every succeeding uh, prophet and has influenced all succeeding prophetic literature. 
not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And this is one of the uh, facts we've got to underline this evening. For instance, Joel's imagery uh, recurs again and again. For example, locusts. He is the first prophet to use this, this particular illustration of a locust. But you know it's a thing that's taken up later in the book of Revelation. And in that book we are told of one of the terrible plagues, the first woe uh, in uh, the, the end time is going to be this, um, this releasing of this army of locusts. Well, of course, obviously it doesn't mean just... Uh, uh, literal locusts, but you see he's the first one to use this in this way. And then again you've got things like the harvest and the wine press as an illustration of divine wrath. Wrath. The uh, shearing of everything, the reaping of everything, the pressing of the grapes and so on in the stone wine presses. Uh, that again is taken up later in other prophets and in the New Testament as a picture of divine judgment in the end. And then you've got another little illustration or some more of Joel's imagery, the fountain out of the Lord's house and the river that flows from the Lord's house. Ezekiel, of course, owes possibly quite a lot to Joel in this. He takes up this question of the river. And so do many other prophets speak of the fountain opened uh, in the house of Israel, Zechariah, for instance, does, and others. You see, this little prophet, uh, three chapters and not many verses, a portion to each uh, chapter, has given a tremendous amount to uh, the rest of the prophets uh, in the Bible. Then it's also interesting to note how he's quoted by other prophets. Now, I'll give you an example of that. Um, if you look at Obadiah 17, <coughs> Obadiah 17, <coughs> Obadiah 17, Obadiah just comes before Jonah. But in Mount Zion there shall be those that escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Now, look back to um, Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. And you read this. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. You see, Obadiah is quoting this um, sentence of Joel's in his message. He is really, it should be in quotations. He's saying, they shall drink and stagger, and they shall be as though they had not been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those that escape. He's quoting back, he's referring back to an earlier prophet. This is one of the first instances of another prophet being quoted in very much the way that we quote scripture. Very interesting. 
And then <clears throat> it's not only that um, uh, Joel is quoted by other prophets, but in some instances it looks as if a sentence from Joel's prophecy, I was going to say a verse, but of course you realize there were no verses or, uh, until comparatively recently, um, as if a sentence from Joel's prophecy has become the text for a message or um, has become the basis of a message. There's a very good example of that in Amos. Now this is very interesting. Amos chapter 1, verse 2. The very first opening words of the whole prophecy of Amos. This is what he says. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Now if you look back to Joel... And chapter 3 and verse 16, you read this. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. You see, uh, it's almost as if Amos took up where Joel ended. Um, a most interesting point. And one of the first instances, at least that I know of, of another prophet basing his whole message upon something which he has discovered in a preceding prophet. So you see, perhaps I don't know if it will help anyone in some small way, but if we are small and seemingly insignificant, we can in actual fact, in our lives and by the way we walk with the Lord, have very great influence and make a very big contribution. It may seem to others that uh, uh, there's very little to give and we are rather insignificant and so on. But you see how this prophet who occupies so small uh, a place, in a sense, in Scripture, has influenced so greatly uh, the other prophets. It's also, I think, very important to remember that his essential message concerning the day of the Lord and all that is related to it, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and also the remnant who will be saved, um, this whole question, the core of his message, which is the day of the Lord, is something which, which underlies everything which chronologically follows Joel. And I think that is a most important um, uh, fact to state. You see, his whole message was bound up with the day of the Lord. That may not mean anything to you as yet. We're going to have to look at it, of course. But his message, the core of it, was the day of the Lord, whatever that might mean. And from that point onward, all the other prophets start to take up this phrase, the day of the Lord. And indeed, when you come to the New Testament, it takes on a tremendous significance the day of the Lord. Even Peter quotes this very prophet at the day of Pentecost when the church, as it were, was uh, brought into a new sphere of, in, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then Peter quotes this prophet and he underlines his whole question, but this is in the light of the day of the Lord. This whole thing is preparatory to and, and for the day of the Lord. So you can see uh, that his message, Joel's message, 
uh, underlies not only much of the Old Testament, but nearly the whole of the New Testament. And I think also we ought to underline the necessity, having said that, of understanding these small books if we are to understand so much else in the Bible. These minor prophets, as we call them, take up each one a, a certain uh, theme and they, they, as it were, focus attention upon that theme and seek to uh, lay the whole thing before, before us in a positive way. You see, if it wasn't for Hosea, we might perhaps escape the wonder of the meaning of that little word chesed in, in Scripture, the loving kindness or mercy or steadfast love of the Lord. We wouldn't really understand what it means. And if we don't understand what that means, we have a very poor appreciation of the covenant, which I, I doubt whether many people have any appreciation of in this room. The covenant, the new covenant in his blood. Tremendous thing. But you see, Hosea has given us the key to that covenant, something of the relationship of that covenant made with us, what it means to be in covenant relationship with the Lord. Now Joel is going to take up a very important and altogether different thing, the day of the Lord. And he is going to... Um, tie everything up, as it were, to the day of the Lord. He's going to relate everything for us to the day of the Lord. So I want you to see that these little books, far from being minor prophets that um, don't make much sense, but have some rather lovely little passages here and there buried away in their chapters, are in actual fact vital to an understanding of the unfolding revelation in the Bible. And I would particularly like to say this, that the book of Revelation cannot be understood without a very thorough understanding of, of these prophetic books. I think far too many books have been written about the book of Revelation without any regard to preceding prophetic literature. You can't understand it. When we come to look at the locusts uh, in Revelation chapter 9, uh, we shall have to, in the years that lie ahead, if we're still all here when we get to the book of Revelation, we shall have to go back to Joel and find out what was it that Joel first said about these locusts. Why did he take them up and make them a kind of um, uh, illustration, of a symbol of something? in the same way that Ezekiel takes up a tremendous amount, which, without an understanding of which, we cannot understand the book of Revelation. And it's the same with Daniel. And so we could go on. Well, there we are. Joel's a small book, but it's a tremendously powerful and influential book. And it has had a, a, a great effect, effect upon the course of the Bible. Then we must say one little thing about the style of Joel. All scholarship agrees 
in ascribing to Joel a most elegant, strangely enough, a most elegant, lucid and polished style. He, it has been called a literary gem of the first rank. Uh, Joel has indeed a pure and simple style. I don't know how many of you have read it. You really have little excuse if you haven't, because there's only three chapters. Uh, but if you have read it, one thing that surely should stand out is the simplicity and the purity of Joel's style and of his language. And yet, the um, graphic and virile strength of that style. Um, he may be simple and he may be uh, pure in his style. There's none of the overcrowded uh, language of some other prophets. There's nothing that's fussy about the style of uh, Joel. He's very clear, he's very direct, but he is exceedingly graphic, and there is a strength, a vitality, a vivacity uh, about his, um, his uh, pro prophesying, his approach. Um, and then another interesting thing about um, uh, Joel is the rhythmic and poetic quality of his style. Of course, much pro uh, prophetic literature is in poetic form, but uh, Joel... Uh, is really of the first rank. There's a rhythm about his, um, uh, his, his style. But the most important thing, I think, of all to note is that in spite of all the literary polish of Joel, we don't know anything about Joel, as we shall find out a bit later, we don't know anything about his background, uh, what type of family he came from or anything else but the most interesting thing is that in spite of this literary polish that he had uh, there's no restriction or limitation uh, of the depth of his feelings they come right out into the open you would expect as so often is the case with a very highly developed literary style even if simple there is sometimes a certain limitation of the feeling uh, and the sort of impassioned nature uh, of the appeal. It's it sort of toned down. It's sort of watered down in the literary form and beauty uh, that has been given to it. But here it is not so. Um, that perhaps is the most remarkable thing of all. Joel is quoted quite a number of times in the New Testament. Uh, of course, the greatest and most obvious one, I think, known to you all, is when Peter said, this is that which the prophet Joel spake when he said. That was the day of Pentecost. Now, do we know anything about the authorship and date? We have absolutely no information about Joel whatsoever except that we have his name and we have his father's name in verse 1 of chapter 1. His father's name was Pethuel. That's all that we know. For, furthermore, there is nothing in the book which gives an obvious and unambiguous clue 
as to the uh, as to its date. So you can see straight away that Joel presents us with peculiar problems, because we have here a prophet of which, in the whole of the Bible, we've got no other information about him, who gives us no information in his own little book about him and in which we have not even an unambiguous clue uh, as to its date. One of the greatest difficulties about Joel is that every clue we have got could fit into at least two times in the history of God's people, divided by something like 400 years. So you can see the difficulty that we're presented with when we come to the authorship and the date of uh, Joel. Of course, it claims to be the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. <clears throat> we can say that it's reasonably clear from the book that Joel lived and prophesied in Judah. That is, whereas um, Hosea... Uh, prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel, we are reasonably clear from the book that uh, Joel prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he may possibly have lived in Jerusalem. That is open again to very real question, but there are a number of scholars who believe that he lived in uh, Jerusalem. Of course, you might think that gives us a clue to, its, to the date, because we could say, well, at least he must, then it must have been before Judah fell. But you see, when the people went back, there was no northern kingdom. It was only then uh, Judah, as we have it there, with a few ex little addition and extension to its land. So here we are, we've got these peculiar problems in this book, and scholars are equally divided over the dating of it, although most would agree to the unity of the authorship. Um, from internal evidence in the book, we are tied to either a very early date, before 800 BC, somewhere here, uh, before that, anywhere up to uh, Joash or Amaziah, or we are tied to a date very much later, somewhere down here, um, in the days of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, if not after that. Some scholars would even place um, uh, Joel's uh, life as late as 200 BC, making him the very last in the whole of the Old Testament to live and to prophesy before it was found that the canon of Scripture, or the Old Testament, was finally closed. So now you understand we are presenting uh, something of a pro we are presented with something of a problem. Now, why? It is because there is no mention of Assyria or Babylon in the whole of this little book. There is no mention of the exile in this book. There is no mention of Persia in this book. There is no mention of the northern kingdom, which is considered by some to be the most strange thing. But I would like just to point you to one thing which heightens the mystery about it. Chapter 2 
and verse 20. What does this mean? I will remove the northerner far from you. What does that mean? You see, there again, there's a lot of mystery around it. Some say this, um, some versions have put the northern army. Some say this is a reference to the locusts that were swept in uh, and were going to be driven out uh, in the direction of the north. All these things, you see, um, are, are questions. There is no clear question, no clear reference to the northern kingdom in this book of Joel. Now, even more strange, there is no reference to the king or the throne in this prophecy. Nearly all the prophets refer somehow to the king or the throne, but there is no reference to either of them. But, on the other hand, there is a lot of reference to the elders, to the priests, to the house of God, and to the service within the house of God, sacrifice and offerings. So, you see, because of all this, many scholars say this is conclusive, that this little book of Joel belongs to a date somewhere from 500 uh, down to 200 BC. Because if Assyria and Babylon are not mentioned, then it means that either it was before Amaziah or it must be after uh, um, Zerubbabel when these um, uh, great powers had ceased to be factors in world history. It can't be the exile because people say, well, surely they would have mentioned it. Then there's a question, well, why doesn't Persia mention All say the scholars, because Persia was friendly to the, uh, uh, the good people of God who went back, you see. Consequently, there was no need to mention them. Then people point, the scholars pointed, uh, many scholars pointed the question, no mention of a king. Oh, they say that is conclusive proof that this book belongs to a very late date, because there was no king. The monarchy collapsed with the fall of Jerusalem and was never restored. But, they said, when they went back to the land, the nation was in the hands of the high priest, who virtually ruled them. The rulers, the elders, and the high priest. So they say, now this is conclusive proof, uh, quite clear, that um, Joel uh, lived in the latter part uh, of, the, of uh, the history of God's people. And then they point to Joel, to Joel chapter 3, verse 1, as conclusive proof. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the captivity, or bring again the captivity, of Judah and Jerusalem, and then verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God and dwell in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Now the scholars say, some scholars, um, this is proof that uh, this is post-exilic. That means that, that it belongs to the period after the exile, a very late date. Nevertheless, 
Now the other side. Nevertheless, until quite recently, the voice of both antiquity and tradition were absolutely one, both Jewish and Christian, in assigning Joel to a very early date, indeed making him the first prophet uh, of, who wrote his message in the whole line of those who were literary prophets, as we call them. Um, the points put forward in favor of the early date are these, and they're very interesting. The language and the style of Joel is definitely not that of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, any fool here who can read those three books and put them next to Joel should be able to see that they belong to an entirely different uh, uh, period. That's quite clear. Another very interesting point put forward in favor of an early date is that the enemies mentioned, the enemies mentioned in the book of Joel are the Edomites, the Philistines, the Phoenicians, and the Egyptians. And it is pointed out that all four of these were only the enemies of God's people very early in their history, and that in the latter part you never hear the Philistines mentioned hardly the Phoenicians, certainly not the Edomites, and the Egyptians were friends uh, in the latter days. Uh, many of God's people found refuge in the land of Egypt. So this again uh, just heightens the mystery, because with all the evidence for a late date, now evidence begins to uh, pile up for the early date. Then, um, even more interesting, both Hosea, if you want to look it up, chapter 6, verse 11, and Amos, chapter 9, and verse 14, over whom we are pretty well clear that they ministered uh, in this period, that is before the exile, both of them use almost the same phrase as um, Joel, that the Lord will restore or bring again the captivity of Judah. So uh, that seems again uh, to be quite clear that it can be used uh, prophetically before ever the event has come to pass. One more bit of evidence in favor of an, of an early day. Then say many scholars, there is nothing in the view, in their view, that could not fit into an early date in the whole book of Joel. And furthermore, they add this, the late dating of Joel raises many more difficulties and requires quite a bit of adjustment uh, of facts to suit it. Well, there you are. There you've got the evidence for an early date and a late date. Um, the reign of Joash, here in roughly 836 BC, is generally the reign decided upon uh, by those scholars who favor the early uh, date. Now, would, is it really true that the reign of Joash would answer all our objections? For instance, why isn't the king mentioned? Why isn't the throne mentioned? Why isn't Israel mentioned? 
Why these other Assyria and Babylon and the rest of it? Now, would this reign of Joash uh, answer all these uh, problems and factors in the book of Joel? Well, now, here there are some very interesting things that come to light. Joash, if you all remember, was a little baby when the wicked queen Athaliah slew the whole royal house. He was hid in the temple, in the sanctuary, by the high priest and his godly wife until he was seven years of age. When he was crowned king, you remember, there was such a commotion that Queen Athaliah came in and was executed on the spot uh, there and then. Do you remember the story just in the precincts of the temple? And you will remember, too, that Jehoiada, the high priest, who had become, as it was, as it were, kind of father to Joash, um, what acted as co-regent for quite a number of years until Joash came to a proper age. Now, all that is very interesting, because it simply means that when Joel, if Joel did prophesy in this reign, uh, the king would have not been any real influence. Uh, the king nor the throne would have been the influence, but the elders and the high priest and the priesthood would have been the influential authority in the country. Now that fits in completely with the factors we have mentioned. Secondly, at that time, both Assyria and Babylon were internally very weak. It was a period when they were too busy squabbling uh, amongst themselves to bother about their far-flung outposts and also their vassal states and so on. Consequently, that fits very much into the picture. It was some 100 or 200 years later that Assyria suddenly uh, was raised to new uh, heights of power. Then another very interesting thing, Joash's reign was a time of revival, a very real time of revival. If you will remember, it was the point after that wicked reign of Queen Athaliah, when the whole country was given over to vile practices. You perhaps will remember that Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And it was to a compromise on the part of Jehoshaphat who married his son to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel to somehow try and bridge the division. It was an attempt of the flesh to bridge the division between God's people. The result was that Athaliah nearly destroyed the royal line of the Messiah. You remember she slew everyone. If it wasn't that one little baby that was smuggled away, uh, the line of the Messiah would have been cut. It was the only time in history when the, that princely, royal, divine line was near to extinction. The most remarkable time, it was one of the greatest satanic attempts in Old Testament history to destroy the royal line of David of which the Messiah should come. A most interesting side pick line on compromise. But you see... Uh, the point is that it, after Athaliah was slain and Joash came to throne, there was a revival. 
and you can read it in Chronicles 24, to Chronicles 24, I believe it is, where you will see what happened and how it happened, and how under the godly leadership of Jehoiada, the country really did seek after the Lord. Now, that would also um, be the reason why we don't find the grosser sins mentioned by Joel, mentioned by so many of the other prophets. Uh, it was, of course, because the nation had not fallen to the depths of depravity and compromise that later it was to come to. Now, all these things answer the facts, that the factors so far, that we've found in the book of Joel. Why isn't Israel mentioned? Well, this, I think, is a weak point, but it might be worthy of mentioning. Um, many feel that it was because of Athaliah. Athaliah was looked upon by all godly people with absolute abhorrence, very much like our own bloody Queen Mary is looked upon by all good Protestants uh, with very great abhorrence. Um, and consequently, it was just as if uh, Israel was something that people just did not want to think about. It had nearly brought an end to the nation and to the royal line, uh, which was looked to with so much reverence. You must remember that Israel had 19 dynastic changes uh, in its history, and Judah never won. Uh, I think that's a uh, most impressive fact and something we have to remember. Well, all those things then answer, don't they, to what we find. It seems that this rain would uh, uh, possibly be the answer to it. But there's one other very interesting point. The Edomites are mentioned, the Egyptians are mentioned, linked together, and the Phoenicians... Philistines are mentioned as selling Jewish slaves to the Greeks, boys, that they captured. Now, it's very interesting that in the reign of Jehoram, just before Joash, it's not on here, but it's just a little time before Joash, uh, in the reign of Jehoram, if you read it in Chronicles, you will discover that the Edomites rebelled as uh, against Judah, sought their independence. Uh, the Egyptians raided them under Shishak, came right up to the temple and were only bribed off. And the Phoenicians and the Philistines kept on making marauding raids and carrying off slaves. Now, all this could answer uh, some of these things that we discover in this book. So, you see, there does not seem to be sufficient evidence for uh, giving to Joel a late date. And it is more than probable that he did prophesy in the reign of Joash, which would date the book of Joel at about 830-836 BC and would make it the first prophet uh, who wrote his message. I've put Joel in here and I've put a question mark. Uh, after him because it is just a little bit of hesitation. We can't be absolutely dogmatic about it. But to me, anyway, I am more or less convinced that um, uh, he belongs to the earlier part um, of the history of Judah. Now, if that's also... 
uh, one other point we ought to make, and that is this. It is often maintained that Joel borrowed a lot of his message from Amos, but it is just as arguable that Amos received and the other prophets a lot from Joel. I don't think that argument holds any water. And then we might also just make this other point that nearly the whole book is in poetic form, the exception being, as you can see in the Revised Standard Version, in chapter 2 from verse 30 to chapter 3 and verse 8. Otherwise, the whole of this book is in poetic form. Now, is there anything we can say about the, more that we can say about the background of the prophet? As we can see now, I trust, there's not a lot that really we can say, it's not easy to say a lot, about the background of Joel, because we cannot establish beyond doubt where, when actually uh, he lived and ministered. But we can say uh, that his name, which was a very common one, means Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God, Joel. <coughs> A very common name. I believe it, it's used almost 14 times in the Bible itself. I think I'm right in saying that. And we can also, I think, say reasonably that he was a prophet in Judah and he possibly lived in Jerusalem and his father was certainly Pethuel. Uh, it's also quite likely that during the latter part of his life, his contemporaries in Israel were Amos, and Hosea. They would have been contemporary in the very latter part of his life uh, in the northern kingdom. We can say those things about him. If he lived in the reign of Joash, he lived in what was a time of revival and faithfulness on the one side and on the other side intrigue and compromise and evil. It was a remarkable time in which he lived, if it was that time, because, you see, for the most part, many of the people were faithful to the Lord and to the house of God and to the priesthood. And one of the most interesting things is that the priesthood itself, instead of being uh, wrong, in, in this particular phase in history, was leading the people in the right way. But it was the ruling house, the royal house, on the whole, uh, which was um, full of intrigue. So consequently, when Queen Athaliah murdered uh, the whole royal house and took the throne herself and managed to reign as a kind of uh, dowager uh, queen, um, she held everything in her hands. Her son, who finally came to the throne, was just a puppet until he was assassinated. And then later on, of course, uh, she, not knowing that for seven years that child she thought she'd murdered was being brought up in the house of God when she finally went in, she was uh, assassinated. But even Joash is remembered in Scripture for a terrible crime that he committed, though he was a good king, at the end of his life. When Jehoiada the high priest had died, you will remember that when Zechariah rebuked him for hypocrisy and for evil, he slew him, he executed him. And the Lord Jesus spoke of him as the last of the line of martyrs. Through all the righteous blood he had slain, from Abel to Zechariah, 
who was slain between the altar and the pillar in the house of God. He mentioned him expressly. So it is very interesting, you see, that, that if Joel did live in this time, it was a strange phase. On the one side, there was so much faithfulness, there was real revival, and there was devotion to the Lord. On the other side, there was intrigue and evil and compromise and a lot that was not of the Lord at all. So we can say all that. Uh, of course, Joash's reign followed the very, the intensely evil reign of Athaliah, and it was followed itself by the good, though not wholehearted, reign of Amaziah and Uzziah. One thing we can say absolutely about the um, life of Joel, and that was that sometime during it, there was one of the most unparalleled uh, plagues of locusts that uh, God's people had ever seen. We do not know whether they came in four successive uh, waves or whether they were four different kinds, but one thing we do know, and that is that what one lot left, the other lot ate. Uh, so that in the end, the country was devastated and stripped bare. And of course, I don't think hardly any of us, possibly one or two, have seen uh, 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 a plague of locusts. Uh, I remember in Egypt we once or twice just saw one of these creatures and it was battered into pulp before it had a chance to even hop at all. So uh, 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 alert and attentive was everyone for one of these creatures. But I'm told, and we can't do it today, but it would do everyone good to read an account of locusts uh, descending. They blot out the sun. The sky, in some cases, has actually taken on a reddish hue when they've been the reddish colour uh, uh, locusts. Uh, when they come down, the noise of them is evidently unbelievable, the whirring noise of their wings. Uh, of course, when there are so many that they blot out actual daylight, you can understand what a noise these creatures make. And when they settle, within a few moments, uh, the whole... Um, thing that's ravaged and desolated in a way that it is very hard for us who have never seen it to understand. But I was reading in one dictionary an account which said that it looked just like the scorched earth of the last war. That you could not believe that creatures could do such damage to houses and homes and crops and even pasture and everything. Uh, that these creatures can do once they sweep through. So it was in one of the most uh, unusual and abnormal uh, plagues of these creatures that Joel started to minister because this visitation of God, as he saw it, became the starting point of, of his ministry. Well, now, what is the key to the book of um, Joel? Um, the key to this book, I think I have already mentioned it, is the day of the Lord. It's mentioned five times in these three short chapters, but the whole book centers in this thought of the day of the Lord. We find this phrase, the day of the Lord, 
everywhere in the in Old Testament prophecy and also of course in the New Testament but what does it mean what does the day of the Lord mean because I think that sometimes we have um, a slightly uh, unbalanced idea of the meaning of the day of the Lord what does it mean now Let's put it like this. It speaks always of the intervention of God to establish his complete kingship and vindicate himself entirely and his own in the eyes of unrighteous and wicked men. And it means also not only his vindication and the establishing of his kingship or sovereignty, if you like, but it always denotes the judgment and destruction by God of evil. Always. God's visitation upon evil and evil men. On the one hand, and on the other the restoration of a right order. Of course, when it speaks of the day of the world, which is the finale of human history, then it speaks not only of the final judgment of all evil and its utter and absolute destruction, but it speaks also of the restitution to the whole universe, not just humanity, but to the whole universe of its right position and order. Now this is referred to in scripture as the day of the Lord. Paul spoke of it in this way. He said there's coming a day when all things will be summed up and headed up in Christ. Now that's what it means. Christ as head of the whole thing. You see, it doesn't need anyone very clever or intelligent to see that something has gone wrong, not only with humanity, but with the whole universe. Somehow or other, something of the original design has gone. Uh, we can see a lot of it, but there's something basically uh, wrong. Something somehow is missing. Now that's Something missing is, of course, the direct headship or lordship of God, giving the order to everything. You see, God so constituted this universe that it was centered in man. Do you understand? God so constituted man that he was centered in God. So God becomes the heart of the whole universe. Now, do you get that? Let me say it again. God so constituted the whole universe, this particular universe, that it is centered in man. When he said, you shall have dominion, you shall rule. See, everything was to find its right order, right position, right function, its harmony, as it was related to the right kind of man. When you've got the right kind of man at the heart of it, everything else just worked in, in order. Everything was a harmony. 
everything worked as it was designed and intended to work. But here's the clue to it all. Man was so constituted at the beginning that he could only find his entity, I put it another way, his unity, or put it another way, his harmony, as he was centered in God. Thus, God's whole design was that he in Christ should become the center of the whole universe. By being the heart of man, by man being integrated and built into him, centered in him, and the universe into man, so in fact God ruled everything. This was the original design uh, of, the, of, of the whole universe and of humanity. You get glimpses of that, of course, in Scripture and in particular in the Psalms and elsewhere. And in other parts of the New Testament, about everything consisting, subsisting in Christ. Now the day of the Lord is when that broken order, that disorder that has come into being by the fall of man and therefore the fall of the whole creation shall be finally restored. The right kind of man put in the heart of a new creation. This is the day of the Lord. It's a lovely term. When you look at it like that, it's a lovely term. Because it's a hope. It's a wonderful hope. You see, why do we all sometimes feel somehow a tinge of, not depression, but of a a kind of sense as we look at the world, natural world and everything, a sense of somehow it not being right. Uh, we feel it within, we feel it without. And it wears us out slowly. Just the, the, the knowledge that somehow it's not harmonious. Something's not flowing. Something's not ha- flowing and, and working together. Well, you see, that, that the day of the Lord's when all that's removed, whole thing is brought back to its right position. Now that's the day of the Lord. Of course in scriptural language it's spoken of as the kingship of God. The sovereignty of God. That's what it means, you see. He's having his rightful place. And uh, the vindication of God. And of his own. And of course then the destruction of all evil which has caused the disorder. And of evil men and the, um, the, the restoring of the whole universe to its rightful position and place. Now, when we understand that, we begin to understand a lot more about the day of the Lord. It's nearly always directly associated with Christ, with the church, and with the judgment of this world. You nearly always get one or the two, or all three notes associated with the day of the Lord. Christ, the Messiah of God, as the head and king of all, Lord of lords and king of kings. The church, as the fullness of him which filleth all in all, his body, destined to be with him at the heart of everything. And then, the judgment of the world. That's one of the notes you nearly always get associated with the day of the Lord. Judgment. The end of a system of things which is inherently evil. 
a system which cannot give the Lord his rightful place. And it must also be remembered that just as all the great deliverances in the Old Testament prefigure Calvary, so nearly all the great judgments or visitations of God upon either his own people or the nations have become prefigurings of the day of the Lord. Now that's why so often in Scripture you will find the day of the Lord has an ambiguous meaning. You're never quite clear as to whether it means the last, the day of the Lord, or whether it means a day of the Lord before. Do you understand? So uh, Joel, if you look, in chapter 1 and verse 15, speaks of the day of the Lord in the near future. He says the day of the Lord is at hand, or is near. And he obviously means a coming judgment. Now, most scholars believe that refers, uh, in all probability, to the exile. That was a day of the Lord. A terrible time when the Lord re-established his sovereignty over rebellious and gainsaying people, you see. And later when you get their wonderful promise of restoration and so on uh, brought in well it's all to do with this this day of the Lord but now if you look at chapter 2 and verse 31 you will find that there he speaks of the, the day of the Lord the great and terrible you see and there he refers to the day of the Lord in the far future I don't really believe we've come to that ourselves yet the day of the Lord. Some people think it was such a Pentecost. I doubt that. You see, it's the far future. Now, that's one of the most important things we can say. Because you c you'll get yourself into a mess if you start looking into Scripture and trying to work out what this day of the Lord means if you all the time relegate it to the last day of the Lord. The point is this. Joel sees the locust plague of his day as a harbinger of the day of the Lord that was coming very soon to him. He saw it as a kind of omen or indication of the nearness of a time when God was going to intervene and establish his sovereignty. He was going to restore order. How did he do it? by exiling the people. He got the right kind of order, all right, because when they went back, look at the order that took place when the people went back to the land, you see. It had happened by the intervention of God. Now that is in itself a most important aspect uh, in Joel's prophecy. So you want to see this, but you must also remember that the other prophets speak of such visitations in their day and in their experience as the day of the Lord. And they saw it as prefiguring something greater. I have no doubt at all that Joel saw the day of the Lord in, in the near future to him was but a prefiguring of the day of the Lord, the great and terrible, that was in the far future. Someone has very helpfully um, described it like this. Many of you have been up in Austria or Switzerland or even in Scotland or Wales to the top of some mountains, and you've looked out on a clear day, 
and you can see for miles and miles, you see range after range after range of summits. And it seems to you that they're all so near to you. They just seem just behind each other. In actual fact, you might be looking for many, 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 many miles, uh, which would take you many, many, many days to traverse. But the peaks all look so near. And someone has said that some of the prophets, when they looked out over history, they saw history rather like that. Therefore, they don't often get everything in technical perspective. They don't always see the great valleys in between. They see the great advents, you see. Consequently, it is true to say that Joel, for instance, saw the first advent of the Lord, he saw the second advent of the Lord, but he telescopes them. To him, they are almost one. His first coming into the world, his death and Pentecost, and his final coming is all one work, because he looks at it from far, and he sees it all, as it were, uh, one behind the other, and it seems to him that they're all just as they are, parts of one great movement uh, of God. Well, there we are. I must hasten. Um, this, this Lord's Day is again and again placed over against man's day. Now, that may help some of you to see it more clearly than anything else I could say. The Lord's Day as over against man's day. Do you understand? The sort of sovereignty of the Lord over against the rebellion and insurrection of man. It's, as it were, a time when God reasserts his sovereignty openly in the midst of human pride and arrogance. Whenever that that happens, it's a day of the Lord. And it's happened many times in human history. A day when the Lord has brought down the haughty and arrogant and presumptuous blasphemous speakings of this world and brought them down to the dust. Absolutely down to the dust. And asserted his sovereignty. Of course you may not believe it, but Dunkirk was, was such a time. A day of the Lord. When he brought the whole nation onto its knees before and then did something to rescue it. So there are many, many modern things when the Lord reasserts his sovereignty and everyone has to say, this is the Lord. Absolutely the Lord. Human pride and arrogance go right to the back. And then later they may reassert themselves and people say, I was responsible for it. I did so and so and so. But at the time, no one dares to say that it was anything but God. This was God. This was God that's the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, over against man's day, when he's so arrogant. But, of course, we've got to remember that it will all finally merge into the day of the Lord, which is the finale of human history, when everything will be finally settled. That's the most wonderful point of all. So Joel gives us some clue to its coming, the coming of that day. He gives us what should be, tells us what our attitude should be in the light of the day of the Lord. He tells us what God's attitude to us is in the light of that day of the Lord. 
But perhaps the most important aspect is the absolute need of the Holy Spirit, of his indwelling, of his leadership, of his work, and so on. That's the thing that Joel gives to us in the light of the day of the Lord. It's as if he's saying God's purpose is bound up with Christ, and with Christ's body and the need of the Holy Spirit is of paramount importance in every way if God's purpose in Christ and his own is to be realized. The Holy Spirit is the agency by which we are made members of the body, born of Christ, built into Christ, led into a life which is a life of conformity to him. It's all the Holy Spirit. And you know, one of the great things the enemy is doing all the time is to try and get us to get back into the Old Testament era and leave out the work of the Holy Spirit somehow. The Holy Spirit is the key to it all. And I might say this, to me, to me, this is the strongest ground for looking for a new release of the Holy Spirit at the end of the New Testament age. Many scholars believe that this scripture about the Holy Spirit being poured out has a twofold uh, aspect. That at the end of the age is going to be another pouring of the Holy Spirit. Is that so? Well, I don't think we could just base it on this scripture. It's too ambiguous. But I have a strong feeling within me, somehow or other, that nothing less than something like Pentecost will ever recover the church. If only in a remnant in the last day, in all the pressure and evil and darkness of those last hours, it will be nothing <coughs> but, a, but something like Pentecost, a new release and outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the sovereignty of God, the day of the Lord just stepping in himself to safeguard himself and his purpose. You see, if it's left to us and the way things are going at present, there's going to be no hope whatsoever. But uh, of course I may stand to be corrected here, but it seems to me that nothing else will achieve and complete the purpose of God in this age than such a move uh, by God himself in the light of that day. In no other way can that day dawn. It seems to me. Well, there we are. Um, that's the key to the book of Joel. Here I put very simply the outline, very simple outline really. Um, it's fourfold. Uh, the first is from chapter 1, verse 1 to 2 and verse 11. I've called it the day of the Lord, a time of abnormal visitation. Now, when I say the day of the Lord, a time of abnormal visitation, I don't mean the actual day of the Lord is, but really I mean that preceding it is a time of abnormal visitation, because in Scripture it's very difficult. Because, uh, the day of the Lord seems to overlap, and the time immediately preceding the dawning of the day of the Lord is often associated so much with the day of the Lord that it's almost called the day of the Lord. Do you understand? The sun and the moon and the stars and pillars of smoke and blood and fire, all these visitations of God precede the 
day of the Lord, you see. Now, in these first things, you get this terrible description of the locust plague. Now, this passage has been, uh, there's been great controversy over it. Is it a description of an actual historic event, or is it allegorical, symbolic, or apocalyptic? In other words, it never really happened, but it was something that the prophet used to describe something. Well, I should say it's more than likely all three. It's probably a combination of all those three things. Um, because we have seen again and again how the prophet's ministry is linked and often grows out of, per of a personal experience, like Hosea or with others, or out of a national experience, sometimes the wrong kind of national experience. But often their ministry began there and sometimes wholly grew out of it. And it's quite clear to me that we have here an historic event, incident. When the locusts are described, it's, um, it, I don't, I've never seen the locusts at work, but people who have say that this is an absolute description, it's not exaggerated, it's not even poetic. It's an absolute description of how they strip trees so that they are gaunt and bleached white, right down to the, to the inner uh, part of the sap. Unbelievable. Um, to, to see them, the way they marshal themselves, the noise of them. It's all described here if you look through. See, it was a, a plague of unbelievable strength and duration. And as far as poor um, Joel was concerned, he says to them, have you aged men ever seen anything like this? You never have. It was unparalleled in their day. And he goes on to describe it, the stages of the locust growth. Uh, there are four things uh, that you'll read there. We believe they're stages of the locust growth, not different ones. Some believe they are, but it's more than like they're stages of the locust growth. As it swarmed, uh, developed, swarmed, and then finally uh, multiplied in unbelievable rapidity until the whole land was over, overrun by these successive uh, swarms. So there was no food for the people, no food for the cattle, no sacrifices in the house of God. They'd stripped everything, so there was nothing to give to God. So all service in the house of God came to an end, and with it there was a heat wave of unbelievable power, evidently, if you read, so that all the books dried up, uh, which was an added trial, and fire swept through um, parts of the country, burning up the dried uh, bark and branches of trees and bushes and so on. We get an amazing description of the noise of the locusts and the fear that they put into people as they see the whole sky being blotted out by these creatures. And then finally, um, their order, the way they march in, march up through and around, never jostling each other, but simply going on. It's been said that when you build dig trenches of water to destroy them, they fill them up with dead bodies and then just march over them. They're relentless in their way. Now, this Joel saw to be the harbinger of the day of the Lord. And from this play, Joel understands the chaos and the disorder and misery that lies ahead before the day of the Lord. He says this is the kind of thing which is an indication of that day coming. Now, uh, none of you have got to look very far in the book of Revelation before you find exactly the same thing as a harbinger of the end. And all of you know the effects of uh, radioactivity 
to know that any of these things that are in the book of Revelation are quite possible. You see, there's going to be omens or indications of the nearness of the day of the Lord. No one will have an excuse. The whole visible world, invisible, will see things which will indicate the nearness of the day of the Lord. You see, it is a time of abnormal visitations. All kinds of things which are natural calamities and phenomena will so increase that they will become absolutely abnormal, unparalleled. And that is an indication of the day of the Lord. Always has been in every time in history and will be at the end. Um, I might just say that he sees in this uh, that the, that day will be ushered in by national, political, social, religious disasters. He mentioned, if you look through those, you'll find it all mentioned, the whole thing in every sphere of life, national and international, will uh, be a phase of abnormal visitations ushering in that day. Of course, some believe that this is a prophecy of Judah's fall and the successive armies that will ravage them. That's something we can't go into. Some believe they find in the Hebrew letters for these different stages of locust growth the exact years of the reign of Assyria, Babylon, Greece and Rome, a little far-fetched and fanciful it sounds, but some believe so. Um, there you are. There are some very remarkable things. But even if that is so, the most important thing for us is to understand that the day of the Lord will be ushered in by these abnormal visitations. The next thing you find in Joel 2, 12 to 17, is that the day of the Lord is a time for examination, for repentance, and for returning. In verse 13 here of chapter 2, Joel reminds us that the Lord is full of grace and mercy, slow to anger, and listen, abounding in loving kindness. It's the word again, chesed. Abounding in loving kindness. See, the Lord's there faithful. Now, this is the one most wonderful part in some ways of this prophecy because it's the heart of it all. You see, Joel says, that we stand to lose a tremendous amount by our slothfulness or by our compromise or sinfulness in the day of the Lord. We must not think that just because we're Christians we're going to be delivered. We shall stand to lose a tremendous amount. We shall be involved in it unless we examine ourselves, we turn from it all, we turn to the Lord and we learn to abide in him. If we do that, we'll be all right. It's all taken up in the book of Revelation where you get this 666. And everyone having to be registered with this number. <coughs> the compromise that's involved in it. And the terrible persecution that follows standing outside of it. Well, they were, he speaks very much here. And you know, the New Testament takes this up when it says that the, the blessed hope of his coming is a purifying hope. It purifies us. It's something which, if we will only allow it to, will purify us in such a way as to um, rivet us to the Lord. 
we shall learn to abide in him um, because of that, if we'll only dwell in the light, that coming of his. Well, let's just remember that the Lord, the most important thing of all is the Lord should have a foothold on the earth, and he won't have it if we compromise, but if we are absolutely abiding in him, he's got a foothold on the earth, and there must be a place in that day of abnormal visitation where the men and women of this world can turn to and find God. They won't find him anywhere in religion in that day, because religion will be the scene of disaster. But they will only find it in God's people. That's the most important thing of all. And then in chapter 2 from verse 18 to verse 32, you've got the day of the Lord as a time of the Holy Spirit and of God's grace. These central verses, many people ask, have they been exhausted at Pentecost? When the Lord's, when Peter said, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke about. Many do not believe that they have been exhausted and they point particularly to verse 30 and 32 and the break between verse 29 and 30. After that, there shall be signs in the heavens and so on. They point out that saying that to them that is clear evidence uh, that it has not been exhausted. But we must say this, the 40 years from Calvary to the destruction of Jerusalem was certainly the most chaotic and disordered time in Jewish history and finally ended in disaster. It was one of the most terrible times that the Jewish people have ever known in those 40 years. But on the one hand, whilst it was a time of visitation of the most unbelievable kind, on the other hand, it was when there was a remnant being saved. More Jews were saved in those 40 years than have ever been saved in world history. It was a remnant that, was, that were going to be saved. It was the time when the body of Christ was brought in and revealed at Pentecost. Those 40 years of a proclamation of the whole counsel of God, the years which saw Paul in the well, you see, those years, do they exhaust this prophecy of Joel? Certainly when Peter spoke of them, he seemed to think that they were all fulfilled because he quotes the whole lot. But do you not think that in all possibility, Peter himself would have recognized that later on, and said, that that prophecy still might have a further and fuller fulfillment? I think this is the most comforting of all uh, the parts of Joel's prophecy. That it may well be that in that time of abnormal visitation, there will also be an abnormal release of the Holy Spirit. That at the same time that everything is breaking up, on the other hand, as God's people seek him, so there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, very much like Pentecost, which will enable them not only to stand, but will enable them to fulfill and realize the purpose of God, so that that day can dawn. For the Christian, there's no fear in the day of the, God, of the Lord. Believe me, the sooner that day dawns, the better, because the whole evil system of which we are unfortunately part will go up in flames. We don't have to worry about that. The great thing is that the only one who can do it is the Holy Spirit.
So I think that we must recognize that there's nothing else other than a fresh release of the Holy Spirit can really uh, recover the church only in a remnant and prepare the way for the Lord's coming and for the dawn of that day. Might I just point one scripture out for those who want to follow this up, which might prove this point. Do you remember Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before that great and notable day of the Lord come? And the Lord Jesus was asked if John the Baptist was Elijah, because he refused to say who he was. And do you remember the Lord Jesus said something which has always mystified people? He said, yes, yes, he is. He has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But I tell you that before that great and notable day come, Elijah will come. In other words, the prophecy of Malachi has had one great fulfillment, but there remains for yet a further fulfillment. I believe in the same way that the prophecy of Joel has had one great fulfillment at Pentecost, but there is yet another at the end of the age. Brother Lee once said to me, and I believe he said it to you all, he believed that God had one great new thing to do, which had never yet been done or known before the Lord came. And I think that it is very much bound up with a new release of the Holy Spirit in the sovereignty of God. Well, I leave that with you, but you read through those scriptures, you will find it all there. There's the testimony of God. He says, I am in the midst of you. The poured out Holy Spirit breaking down all barriers, slaves, handmaids, and their masters, all together. <coughs> Sex has gone. Uh, the inequality of class has gone. The inequality of races has gone. All unusual, surely for Joel the prophet to speak of the Lord's Spirit being poured out on all flesh, and not just the Jew. The most marvellous prophecy for his day, when narrow nationalism had so much, uh, had so much to say and so much part. Well, there you are. The the wonderful thing about it is that it results in a tremendous ingathering of unsaved people. It says that in Mount Zion there shall be those that shall be saved. I love that. And the most lovely thing of all, and I believe it's hope for every unsaved man, is that it says, about that day, and whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think that's wonderful. It just means this. Now do listen. It means that your witness in your place of work in your home, however hopeless it seems at present, may one day, in that day, should we be so near it, bear much fruit. There may be many people in that day who have nothing else to think about, but in one brief moment of time, they will call upon the name of the Lord. And God says, Word stands for He's such a God of grace and love that He will save someone who at the very last moment turns like that to Him. This stands on record that in all that visitation of fire and wrath, above it and beyond it, any person who as much as whimpers a cry to God will be amongst the redeemed. I think that's wonderful.
So don't let's go away thinking that Joel thunders judgment and <coughs> wrath and anger and everything else. He does, and rightly. But above it and beyond it, he tells us that the love of God is something tremendous. If you read the last part, chapter 3, you'll find it's the day of the Lord, the final judgment, destruction of evil, final realization of the full and in fullness of God's kingship and purpose. You see, it's the day of the Lord. It's been ushered in. The Holy Spirit's outpouring in the greatest way, I think, is the harbinger of the day of the Lord to achieve it, to effect the purpose of God, to bring it in, and to constitute a people, however small, in every nation, to whom in those terrible days men and women can turn, who will be in those days before a beacon to point them to the Lord so that when the day comes they might remember. Oh, well, there we are. Joel has a lot to tell us about the day of the Lord. I wonder what we are, how we are living in the light of it. We don't know how far off it is, but we must live in the light of that day. The day of the Lord may be a long way off, I don't know. A day of the Lord might be near. Perhaps the day of the Lord is much nearer than we think. The only thing for us to do is to seek the Lord and seek to abide in him and look in his grace for an outpouring of his spirit that will be will meet the needs and be sufficient for the requirements of realizing his purpose in such terrible days. May the Lord help us. And now, dear Lord, we very simply place this book into thy hands we have traversed it, Lord, this evening. Oh, we do pray together now that the amount that's been given may not be lost upon us, nor, Lord Jesus, the uh, import of it all. Oh, we do pray that we shall understand something about this day of the Lord, and that we might understand our Father, how we might live in the light of it, how we may take that blessed hope of the appearing of the Lord Jesus, so that it purifies us, Lord, instead of making us fearful. We ask it together in thine own wonderful name.